Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How you doing? Last week you weren't feeling so hot. Are you feeling better this week? Are you on the up? I am feeling better. I'm on the up. And Sandy, have you seen how the event is going? Oh, no. You like update me every week with a surprise. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I'm like very excited. I have finally booked my stay in Vancouver. So it's real now. It's happening. Um, but no, like, how are we doing? We're doing well. It's going to be a really big event. Um, the ticket sales are really, really strong. And I know I'm excited. And Sandy, I know you're excited to see everybody. It is Tuesday, November 29th at the Maritime Labor Center in Vancouver. Get your tickets. Um, I don't think that you're at risk of them selling out, but they are going very quickly. And so I would get them sooner rather than later. But we have more than 200 folks um, already holding tickets. Oh, my God. That's so dope. 200 people. Yay. Thank you all for all your support. And also, I mean, I met up with someone this week who was just like, "Um, no, I didn't get a ticket because it's sold out. And I was like, what? No, no. (laughs) So (laughs) in case you got confused, it was sold out and now it's not sold out because we made the room bigger. So (laughs) you could come now if you were hoping to get uh, access to tickets and had seen that news too early. The updated news is that there are tickets available and we are so, so excited to see you. Yes. Sandy, how are you doing? I mean, I'm great. Uh, I was uh, in Ottawa last week um, talking to the Canadian Teachers Federation. So hello to the Canadian Teachers Federation. That was a really fun uh, discussion, and I'm really glad uh, that I did that. And otherwise, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Amazing. Amazing. I should shout out also to the folks uh, that I met last week at Pathways to Prosperity. Really cool to connect with so many folks working in the immigration and refu- refugee settlement sector. And, um, you know, it's 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 amazing to see folks like we're very lucky that we get to go kind of place to place in this country and see how things are going, how similar things are, how different things are. And it's just um, it's really lovely, uh, which is also why we're looking forward to this Vancouver live show to actually see folks in person. And speaking about things being great, how about we be grateful? Um I'm Ooh, sure we've got some people to thank. Nice. Yeah, I like that. That was like not the most clever thing I've ever said, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. Uh, thank you to everybody who changed their donation or support of the podcast for the first time, uh, specifically this week. Blair, Ben, Alicia, Jennifer, Marc-Andre, and Alex. Thank you so, so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Yes. Okay. So, Christian Freeland Watch. You ready? Yep. You ready? So at this moment in history where things are ballooning out of control with respect to inflation, where, uh, you know, the rents are too damn high. Christian Freeland was basically nowhere last week. That's that's the <laughs> update. There was like no Christian Freeland news except for like this like really small, annoying kind of like she and uh, Pierre Polyver went at each other in the House of Commons about how like Pierre was like, you don't you are out of touch with average Canadians who are struggling. And she was like, 
you live in a mansion, you're too rich to understand people. So it was like two rich people arguing with each other about which one of them understands the struggling average Canadian less. Yeah, so, you know, really great uh, Minister of Finance stuff. I love it. I am not surprised by this. And that's why we're doing Christopher Freeland Watch, because it is important. Sandy, I do also have an update. I want to give a shout out to a union that's on strike right now. Have you been hearing about QP 3906? Oh, no, I have not which is um, makes me a bad uh, former QB3903 <laughs> staff person, I suppose. <laughs> um, but uh, tell me about that. Yeah, well, for folks who don't know, all of the QB39 locals are in higher education. And so 3906 are teaching assistants, research assistants at McMaster University in Hamilton. One of their members was in touch and asked if we could give them a shout out. So here it is. I don't know if they'll still be on strike by the time you hear this episode on Tuesday morning, but check them out. Look it up. Uh, support your local uh, striking workers. And I also know that 3912, the local at Dalhousie University, had been on strike and that strike is over. So really great to see workers flexing their labor muscle. And I hope that uh, listeners to the podcast are paying attention to these things. And if they're happening in your backyard, that you're doing what you can to support the striking workers, whether that is like showing up to the picket line with coffee and food or um, sharing things online and making sure that you're talking to people in your circles about how important it is to support striking workers. Uh, shout out to all of them and shout out to everybody that does do that support work. It's so critical. Before we get into um, the the rest of the content that we're uh, talking about today on the podcast, we do want to um, speak uh, directly to people who have been specifically impacted by uh, what happened in Colorado Springs. Um, if you haven't been paying attention uh, this weekend, uh, a hateful gunman uh, walked into um, a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs and um, five people were killed and 25 people were injured. Um, and this, of course, comes on uh, November 20th, which is the Trans Day of Remembrance. This is obviously absolutely horrific and um, just another example of uh, one of the ways that hate seems to be um, expanding and uh, we're not doing anything um, as a society or we're not doing, we're simply not doing enough as a society um, uh, in the public sector to deal with uh, these rising incidents. And I, uh, you know, this is just a really tragic, awful, enraging tragedy. And so uh, for for those of you who are members of the community, like, you know, and everyone else, loved ones, like this is, I know a lot of people are hurting today. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And we are going to actually be talking about that in this episode. We're going to get there. We've got a couple of other things we want to mention first, but um, recognizing that Number one is really, really important. And number two, I mean, this is going to be a difficult conversation. So if you need to tune out, obviously, that's up to you. Before we get there, Sandy, I don't know if you heard, but the top oil executives and countries responsible for climate change 
came to an historic agreement this past weekend. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, you, they are. I hope you can hear the excitement in my voice because <laughs> I am really looking forward to this. What latest cop historic agreement that is going to do the thing? It just it feels like every time that there's like uh, one of these cop things, okay. <laughs> Like the world leaders, you know, they get together and then they like come up with some agreement, be it Oslo, Paris, whatever the fuck. And then years later, when it's the next cop, it's like, we did not meet those targets. God damn. Why? How did it fail? It's just like, okay. So, yeah, I heard there's like some big agreement to, uh, you know, make sure to support um, the developing uh, states in the world and in, in how we're, I don't know, uh, dealing with climate change. And I'm sure that that uh, will absolutely not happen. (laughs) So amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit that I don't pay attention to the cop process almost at all. I find it very fascinating that despite the fact that especially CBC News spends a lot, a lot, a lot of time talking about cops that I don't understand what the fuck the point of these sessions are. I don't understand what the point of anyone going is. I don't understand the industry around it, including the not-for-profit industry around it. Like I just, I mean, someone can message me and maybe explain it, but like I really don't fucking get it. I don't understand what this is supposed to achieve other than every single year it's like, oh, it's cop again. Um, But yeah, COP27 finished. Uh, The historic deal, um, I'm quoting here from CNBC, uh, is uh, that uh, poor nations will be able to get access to funds that will that are related to loss and damage uh, related to climate change. So nations that get pummeled by extreme weather will have access to a global fund that can help them. I don't know, rebuild or save themselves from climate triggered chaos. Um, That seems like the most expensive Band-Aid that these global powers could have come up with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, great. The most expensive Band-Aid. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it's also a, a really small Band-Aid um, that will eventually fall off the wound. So great. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, I, you know, I think it's a really good moment, though, to, to, to consider, like, you know, global temperatures are rising. Uh, they are on track to rise at a level that will literally destroy humanity uh, in a couple of generations. It's hard to think about that because it's so depressing. And, you know, this is a thing that that, you know, in theory should be able to bring the the global community together. And on on that side, it's not bad, although I do know that, you know, anytime you got oil executives in the room, like it's not gonna be fucking all that useful. But it just seems like the distance between action and where we are is like enormous. And um I don't know, like, like what a distraction, you know, like what it, it like every time the CBC talks about the cop meetings at all or cop 27, as if it was like useful, it's like, was it useful or is this literally just making people feel like something's happening? Is this just like lulling us into a sense of, 
oh, well, you know, at least Canada's at COP and Stephen Guibault, who's like an environmental guy, is our minister of the environment. And, uh, you know, don't pay attention to the fact that Suncor and CNRL and, you know, Canada's biggest oil companies have had record-breaking profits again. And that, you know, there's a direct relationship between their record-breaking profits and fucking the planet in significant ways. That's a loop that doesn't seem to get closed enough. And I, I, I do recall, like, as a child being told that, We had to close the loop. You can close the loop. Recycle, reduce, reuse. Anyway, I go on. What was that? Oh, wasn't that a TV show that everyone heard the ad, right? When they were a kid on TV? Recycle, reduce, reuse. And close the loop. That's like, it's always in my mind, actually. That's, I don't know what the fuck channel would have played on, but it was like all the time on TV. I have, I have no recollection of that. (laughs) I was going to say I've never heard that before, but it's possible I have. So I have no recollection of that. But I mean, cute. <laughs> Great. Close the loop. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's all we have to say about COP, y'all. Like, that's uh, about it. Because, uh, you know, in our minds, that's how useful it is. I mean, prove us wrong if you'd like to. But um, we're probably not wrong on this. Um <laughs> No. The the other thing we should mention is, you know, we spoke for the last couple of weeks um, about uh, the QP Ontario potential strike. Um, it it looked like uh, yesterday was was going to be another potential uh, day of strike, but um, instead, uh, on Sunday there was a tentative deal reached. Um, the details of the uh, deal are not entirely clear, but it does look like there's a um, somewhere in the range of a three point five percent increase per year for workers. So, which um, you know amounts to like uh, a dollar or some, and that was enough for QP to agree and send the um, the uh, tentative deal to the membership for ratification. I'm seeing a lot of mixed reviews about that uh, from people who are claiming to be uh, members of the union online. So, so we'll see what happens there. I, I remain sad about the possibilities because I really do think that it was just such a such a great groundswell of support um that it really could have taken this government to task which is you know why they probably have a tentative deal but that being said i mean a lot of education workers are still in bargaining from other unions um and so knowing that they have that support is still going to be quite useful so we'll see what happens there yeah and it's you know it's possible that the leadership is sending a bad deal hoping to get a very strong strike mandate because the government is playing a very clever game here and the membership has to be united and they have to be on the same page. So that it could be a strategic way to to to, to express a strong majority. Uh, it also could be them folding and accepting what they think they can get. I mean, it's it's really really hard to say. And I think again, we should all be paying attention to how this plays out and um, solidarity to those workers because these are not easy decisions. But if it's the case that they reject the deal, um, you know, we'll do everything we can to support you folks as you um, might find yourselves on the picket line. Okay, Nora, let's let's talk about hate. So the the person who um who who carried out this um mass shooting in Colorado Springs. Um there's some stuff that's coming out about him that um we so we have a little bit more information now. He was apprehended uh for for those of you who 
um, haven't heard that news yet. He is in custody. You know, he um, he's been he's been violent before, Nora. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. He's been violent before he's threatened, um, his mother, uh, and, uh, with a, with a bomb and it, like the bomb squad and his neighbors had to be evacuated, uh, while, uh, police negotiators, uh, negotiated, uh, his surrender. Um, and that was a year and a half ago. Despite that, he still had weapons. He still had weapons and he still had the ability to carry this out. And it seems that there was nothing that was intervening in this person's life, even though he had shown and had been known publicly to be a danger to the people around him. And it's it's that stuff. It's that stuff that makes me so frustrated about how it is that we think about uh, safety and security in our society. It's that stuff that makes me like so frustrated about how it is that we approach hate in our society and issues of oppression. Because to hear society, like if you, you know, are looking at the landscape of how we deal with these things, you would think that hate can be, um, can be dealt with with a series of uh, like, I don't know, lunch and learns at corporate workplaces and some chapters at the end of textbooks and uh, some ex equity training. And that's, that's how you deal with hate. Um, and safety and security remains in our society the way that we deal with it, knowing that this is inadequate, but we haven't really dealt with it in any other way. You call 911, the police show up and they bring safety. And the chasm in the middle the chasm in the middle between those two things of all the stuff that we could be doing. It's just, it's just outrageous to me that we haven't, you know, figured out that like on a basic level, when someone shows themselves to be both hateful and um, dangerous, that there needs to be some sort of intervention. Yeah. Yeah. So Reading the details for me, you know, I, I, I obviously the fact that this person had previous experiences of hateful, violent behavior, that's not surprising. That tends to be what happens is there's that these these behaviors escalate um, this for, for Canadians. I think if we're trying to figure out lessons that we can learn for Canada, um, as a lot of people have asked, how did this guy get guns? I mean, it is easy to get guns in the United States, even though if, if, um, in Colorado, because of his background, he shouldn't have been able to get guns. Uh, he used a long firearm, a long rifle, according to, to the police chief, um, which is also interesting. So, um, that's often, the kind of gun in Canada that people say doesn't need to be restricted because no one commits crimes with, with long rifles. Those are for hunting or for um, utility purposes. And, you know, I think, like, when we see something that happens inside a space, uh, like a nightclub, a queer nightclub, um, I, I'm going to liken a queer nightclub to a religious space. I think that they're very similar in terms of what people get out of them when they go. Obviously, the purposes might be very different. But these are locations that are sacred to the people that that frequent them. 
And when someone walks into a sacred space and uh, commits murder, mass murder, uh, it's an affront and an assault on on humanity. It's an affront and an assault on all people. It doesn't matter the, the, the kind of people who are inside of the space. And of course, in this case, we're talking about queer and trans people and happening on the day of the, of the of Trans Day of Remembrance, which, I mean, just makes this all even more horrifying in terms of the symbolism. Uh, it's it's a direct attack on 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 humanity. It's a terrorist attack, and it's meant to sow fear in the targeted population, in the minds of the targeted population. Let alone, of course, the people who are in the club, the people who are injured, the loved ones of the victims who will have to live with this for the rest of their lives. And like the 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 offshoot impacts of these kinds of acts of violence fundamentally transform society. It's it's a violent way to transform society because you you have people that become traumatized that are not able to do the things that they had done before i mean you steal people's lives like right off the bat that's that's obviously a you know fundamentally changing the lives for them and their families and as you say sandy there's no like discussion about how to actually address this kind of hate or these kinds of actions um, I will note that in all of the reports, it seems that the police were not the ones that brought down the shooter, that the shooter was brought down by um, people in the club uh, very quickly, and that they're being hailed as heroes for stopping what would have been even more death and more injury. Um, and, you know, that's important because, of course, oftentimes it is communities that are left to fend for themselves because police are ineffective and that's not what they exist for and blah, 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 as we've talked many times on this podcast. But, you know, in Canada, we're seeing a rise in homicides ourselves. We've seen a rise in homicides since the pandemic for a whole bunch of reasons, certainly a rise in femicides, so targeted violence against uh, women um, or uh, or gender-based violence or violence that's happening in the context of some sort of personal relationship that people have had. And I mean, I, I, I kind of instantly think about climate change. Like we see the problems. We know the problems. We know what this is going to lead to. We know how bad it's going to get. And yet the solutions are laughable. I mean, there's just, there's nothing. And, and worse than that, when it comes to extremist violence, like as was what triggered uh, this this mass shooting, there's even less le- uh, solutions offered or ideas offered, and it just turns into like you know a security establishment conversation or or a former CSIS people talking about why this is that or whatever, and it's like we have no collective common knowledge uh, among ourselves of how we're supposed to confront this, and I certainly have my own ideas. I know Sandy, you have your own ideas. But I don't know what it's going to take to make these ideas go mainstream because they should have been mainstream for years. And instead, what is mainstream is talking about de-radicalization from like security forces or terrorism or whatever comes from the security state. While at the same time, we're hearing about the truckers convoy and a lot of small liberals scratching their heads going, we really don't know what the fuck is going on here or how to deal with this. Even that mainstream conversation about de-radicalization of like the security forces or whatever, even that is a stunted conversation. It's like that may be the thing that we hear about in the news every once in a while, but we give major power to these organizations to like regulate themselves. And these are like cyclical issues that come up again and again. And whatever power um, that they have to to quote unquote control themselves um, to to make sure that they 
root out this sort of violence in their midst, uh, it's, it continues to be ineffective. Like, so it's just this weird cycle where we do the same ineffectual things that have been happening for a long time. And, uh, I've been doing some, some research and reading and listening about like, um, white supremacist organizing and hateful organizing, um, just generally in North America. And it is, you know, it is interesting how much of this stuff is cyclical. Like it looks very similar to, um, to what, uh, people were dealing with like in the 60s. The difference being that gun proliferation in the United States is huge. And this, you know, in addition to the conversation on hate, in addition to the conversation on like taking care of our communities, in addition to the conversation on violence and like the symptoms of violence um, and the causes of violence being a lot of times um, related to how well people are and how able, how well they are able to live in their communities and if, whether their needs are taken care of and what they see as the cause of the things um, that are making them unwell. You know, all of that aside, um, uh, or put to the side for just one second, um, the, 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 this prolifer- proliferation of guns, access to guns, that's another thing that we should be paying attention to in Canada because, um, you know, the, the, there are certain parties, the conservatives, uh, who are flirting um, with making this uh, uh, the hot button political issue in Canada, seeing how it has been able to polarize people in the United States. And that is, I mean, it's so, it's so dangerous. Like it's so uh, unbelievable. And it's something that I think we should be paying attention to because all of these policies um, that we often hear about starting in the United States that we think are like bad often find their way creeping to Canada. And we have to, to make sure that we are vigilant against that kind of stuff and just fully refuse um, this becoming some sort of political football. And, and not just that they come to Canada. As you know, a lot of these ideas and things start here as well. We are a an exporter of hateful ideas to the global Anglo and Franco hate sphere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, fuck. It's something that I just feel um, very, very frustrated about, as I'm sure many of you do, because uh, as you say, like it's, there are so many people who are doing great work to like figure out how hate is nurtured in our society and have been doing that work for a very long time. And so it is not as though we don't have um, approaches and solutions that we know could be effective. But for whatever reason, it is, it, is, it is not enough for the people in power. And you would think at a time like now where we know, you know, that there are, you know, people who are um, planning, you know, their own insurrections or training on like makeshift bases that they've created to like um, have some sort of um, civil war that spurns from a culture war that we would take these things really, really seriously and that we would, you know, um, change the way that we, uh, that we, 
approach and respond to these things, but we haven't. And it's, it's hard not to, to feel like really, really cynical about um, like a political apparatus that one doesn't care in part because this doesn't affect them. And it's like, you know, th- this will not touch me is what it seems um, to, to, to be saying that, you know, political elite kind of class is like, you know, um, thoughts and prayers. This this will not touch me. Um, and it's also hard not to feel cynical about like, you know, the the way that um, politicians respond to these things or people in power who have the power to impact these things respond to these things in a way that um, that is very almost self-centered. Like, you know, you respond to them by saying the right things and making it about telling an audience something about you instead of making it about making sure that this sort of thing happens less and less and less. Why isn't that the orientation? Why is it more about like, you know, I as a, as a, you know, we are all hurt by that. You know, why is it more about you telling me about yourself? I don't care. Like, what mm-hmm. is it that you're doing to, to stop this sort of thing from happening again? And, you know, whether we're in Canada or the United States or elsewhere, fuck in the world, like we don't see that. And it's, uh, it is really, really really, really frustrating. Well, it's because, as you say, that these uh, these are like our leaders are people that think that they're immune to this stuff and they are immune to this stuff. They have security. They have a ton of security between them and the individuals that they uh, inspire or anger or trigger or whatever. Like that is how this kind of terrorism operates. Like the, the, the very difficult truth. And let's talk just specifically about Canada, but you can make the same kind of parallels to the Republicans and the, and the Democrats. But the truth is that these kinds of acts of violence have been able to help both the liberals and the conservatives. They benefit from this kind of violence and they benefit in very different ways. Like the conservatives, they have this relationship with the far, far right that allows them to, to, to put out like buzzwords, to use transphobia, to use homophobia, to use racism in very, very clever ways that are couched and that allows for Pierre Pauly ever to have total like freedom to say this, this wasn't us, this isn't us, this isn't what we stand for. But it sends the message out to individuals who will be excited by that. And those individuals mostly are within the conservative world, the conservative movement. Maybe they're not members of the party, but they're ready to vote for them. They support them. That's their, that's, that's what, that's where they feel at home. For the fringes of that, the individuals that will look at Paul Ever and say he's a snake, that they can't trust the government, they can't trust what they're doing, they then take these messages and then do the far-right violence. Uh, sometimes we see that directly, or sometimes we see them inspiring people to do this. You know, I talk a lot with people that uh, try to understand far-right violence and the individuals that perpetuate it, and they don't understand how these people, and I'm thinking of specific people that have done far-right mass shootings in Canada or mass killings in Canada, and it's like, but they weren't formal members of these far-right groups. You know, maybe they didn't even vote conservative, maybe they didn't even vote. And it's like, it, it, that's not the issue. It's it's the ecosystem that this creates, and the conservatives turn it on, they turn it off, they have arms dif- different um, distance from it. Polly ever can go down and get all of the 
positive publicity of supporting the truckers' convoy with none of the negative publicity that comes with the more fringe elements of that. And then the fringes is like, this, these are fringe. This isn't, this isn't real. And so they benefit a lot from these messages. And if you have like 100 people and Polly Ever's message reached 90 of them and then the rest of the 10 are too fringe and too far right for that to, to be captured by his message, it doesn't matter because it helps to shape political conversations and, and political consensus in this country. Now, the liberals benefit from it from in, in a very different way and in kind of the opposite way. The liberals, they look at what Polly ever does. They look at the far right and they say to Canadians, look, if you don't support us, if you throw your votes away with the NDP, you're going to get Polly ever. And look how bad it is. He plays footsies with the far right. He's hanging out at the, at the Freedom Convoy, which was such an emergency that we had to invoke the Emergencies Act. And so you must vote for us. The liberals are so adept at this. And if the far right disappeared tomorrow, they would have a crisis of support and legitimacy because they need the far right to help them push against something to convince Canadians to look uh, to vote for them. And in both situations, with both the Liberals and the Conservatives, people are no longer talking about substantive policy issues. They are talking about these nebulous threats from the far right. And it's so clever and it's so embedded in how politics operates in Canada that, um, you know, I, I mean, I just don't know how you look at the world and not see these things. And so when there's no political benefit for either of the two main parties to, to confront far-right hatred in any significant way, well, where does that leave us? Wow, that was, I mean, I think that that is the issue. Like, I feel like you've, you've described it um, so well, you know, like from a, from a political um, standpoint. Another thing that I think is um, that, that harms this um, this issue that perpetuates this issue is, you know, I was talking to a friend this week about like some of the, the weirdness of uh, things that are like Canadian culture. And it's like one of the things that, you know, we're kind of um, uh, taught, I think, uh, to to be like as Canadians growing up is to like you know, be sort of centrist about everything. Like you're taught growing up that the center is the, is the best way is the, is the, is the way to be. It's the most reasonable thing. And as Canadians, you know, we're, we're like, you know, super polite and reasonable people. And that, what that means is that nothing is as bad as anyone says it is. From a cultural standpoint, nothing is as bad as anyone says it is. So if someone says femicide is an issue, if someone says transphobia and uh, trans hate is a, is a major issue, if someone says black people are being gunned down by the police at, at 20 times the rate of other people, the, the Canadian sensibility, like what has been ingrained in us, is to think it's not really that bad. And uh, as we were discussing that, I was like, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, it just felt like a almost like a clicky moment where it's like, yeah, that's one of the things is that we are so indoctrinated by this like political center that it be has become like a, a cultural thing to be this like everything is there, there is a center to everything. So whatever someone is telling you is the truth. If someone is saying to you, this is this is a major issue, hate, white supremacy, um, hateful violence in our society, um, the 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 natural Canadian sensibility is to to figure out, well, 
is it? Is it that bad? And uh, you can also see how politicians benefit from that because it means they never actually have to do anything. And there is never any expectation for them to literally do anything because it makes sense that they wouldn't do anything because it's not actually that bad. And it doesn't matter how extreme it gets. It's, it's never that bad. <laughs> and so, you know, for, from the standpoint of people who are members of these communities who are experiencing this, this sort of um, violence and these threats uh, to um, their well-being, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's an unacceptable and maddening situation because when will it ever be that bad? That is the question, right? When is it ever going to get bad enough for someone who is apparently has the responsibility to take care of this shit, to think that it's important to take care of this shit, if the answer is always, it's not that bad. Um, and, you, you know, like, I, I, that is one of those things, you know, culture is, some people might think that that's like amorphous and how do you deal with culture? Culture is culture. But I mean, it's not like you can, you can trace where that sort of, um, uh, sensibility comes from it, it, it comes from, you know, this like history of us, uh, being from like, you know, like this monarchy that is, that, uh, positions itself as different from the United States and better and more reasonable. And it comes from like socialization through education and every institution and media institution that is a part of this country. Like that is how we talk about things is that it's not that bad. Even after a, a horrific situation might happen, we will talk about how as Canadians, you know, like this is, this is an aberration. This is not how Canadians are. This is, it is not that bad. It is not a problem for us. And that is something that we have to, um, you know, as part of dealing with these things, reject. It's, it's bad from, from the first time it happens. It is worth dealing with as an emergency from the first time it happens, because what do you have to lose from dealing with a situation that is hateful and dangerous? What do you have to lose from treating it like an emergency that could happen again from the very first instance, from spending resources on it? The only thing, the only uh, people, group of people that benefit from, from the posture of it's not that bad. It's not us. It's somewhere else. This is an aberration. Our politicians and the hateful people themselves. So there's no reason to be thinking in that way. Mm -hmm. I want to throw something to you, Sandy, that I saw this weekend that uh, I, I'm just, I, I know that you're going to say the right thing. I know that you're going to say something awesome in response to this. Um, I was reading my newspaper and I saw a review for a new book. And the book is written by journalist Hélène Buzetti, who Quebecers will know, um, English Canadians might not know. Uh, Hélène was for more than 20 years the uh, parliamentary correspondent for Le Devoir. So Quebec's eyes on the federal parliament on what was going on in Ottawa. And she has this new book out and it's called um, like In Support Of or something like that, The Extreme Centre. 
And in this interview, um, she admits that she spends more time criticizing the far left because she thinks that the far right has had um, its fair share of criticism. And she's trying to, like, balance the sides of making sure that the, the far left gets its just level of criticism uh, as as the far right has had. And it, I felt what? like I was like, get, yeah, yeah. I felt like I was getting like worms in my eyeballs that were crawling into my brain as I was reading this and trying to put myself in the position of, of, a, of a journalist that watched Ottawa from 1999 until 2021 and still comes out and thinking that the extreme center is like where you want to be. And then the chauvinism behind that position, like this is the enlightened position. I'm, I'm, I'm uncorruptible by the sides. I have positions that transcend both political orientations. And that's why I find myself in the extreme center. And I'm just like, I think that that's an interesting way to end is this idea that that that, as you say, things are not that bad. The Canadians are very like centrist in our in how we're told to be. But but like, how do you react to this idea that like the extreme center is is where is the the natural um, enlightened location for us to to fall down? I mean, God, what a fucking mirage of meaninglessness. Like that doesn't mean, it doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. What is the extreme center? The center has been pulled right in the last like 30 years, 40 years. The center has been pulled right massively. So congratulations. You're just the right. Like if you, if you started there in 1999 <laughs> and have come um, to, to the, this place that you need, you need to be, have a fealty to the center um, 20 years later, 20 plus some years later, you have just gone to the rightward position. Like that's who you are. If that's what you're defending, because at that point in 1999, you know, what was outrageous was like the reform party. And that's where uh, people were the reform party. And then later the, the Canadian Alliance where people were thinking those, those people are nuts. Those people are like what, you know, we didn't have the, the term alt-right at that time. And we weren't using um, white supremacy in the way that we should have, but that's what, that's what that was. And people would make fun of those parties on the radio and in the news saying that this was so outrageous that people like that would never, you know, the, the centrist position was that we didn't, we shouldn't care about those things. And now those policies, those people who ran those um, political parties, you know, Stephen Harper was of the Canadian Alliance, uh, now gets, those people get into power and can put in uh, policies uh, that stoke uh, white supremacist organizing. So what the center, and, and sorry, you think that it's necessary to like for out of some weird idea of fairness to uh, critique the left <laughs> to make sure that the left gets their fair share you know people in the center um you know the left represents like such a threat to them i think that's the reason why um you know they hate them so much because um left wing policies are about are about morals and morality and humanity and if you were to accept left-wing policies um, from the center position, then you're a bad person. And the center people don't want to be bad people. So they have to position the left as outrageous. It has to be outrageous to, like, to be like, we need to um, have a policy, have policies or pay attention to on a systemic level, hate. That has to be 
outrageous because otherwise they're bad people. It has to be that it's like mm-hmm. an individual mm-hmm. thing that is, it's not our fault. We can't do anything about it because otherwise they're bad people. That's why I think the center hates us so much and, and spends all of this time tying themselves in knots, trying to justify that, um, okay, the right who like, you know, want people to die and is uh, careening humanity towards the end is just as bad as, uh, you know, the, the left who wants to, um, make sure that uh, cops stop killing people and that we deal with violence uh, in a way that is preventative rather than uh, uh, rather than responding to mass murders again and again and again. Like even just saying the things out loud, it's just like, am I living in some sort of horror comedy show? It doesn't make any sense. And I, I cannot believe that, sorry, this is a book that was published. Like these are ideas that someone thought, cool, let's put this into a book and sell yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. My God. Yeah. Well, it, it helps to obscure, as you say, like those those solutions. And and I, I, I often run into people who are unsure about the solutions. And it's like, there are a lot of solutions to fighting far-right hatred and violence. And one of the solutions um, is in empowering communities and in, in democratic control of things within our community. And when you have democratic control, you actually are able to reach people directly. And if someone's falling through the cracks, there's more points of contact with them because we're running things ourselves. We're trying to mobilize or organize or do things that, that help to keep ourselves alive and fed and able to move around and safe and whatever. And so, I mean... Part of the defunding the police movement, a big part of defunding the police movement is, of course, redirecting money into things that would actually make things better, make things more secure for average people instead of just the rich, uh, or to not orient everything towards private property and the protection of private property. But it's not just that. There's a lot of other options, too. And, you know, any any left-wing liberal who might fall by accident over this episode. <laughs> like, I challenge you, if you if you like are not sure what you're supposed to do and you're not sure about how your party needs to act, well, first of all, you have to be honest about how your party benefits from all of this stuff and ask yourself, you know, are we not creating these like massive targeted programs to stop hatred and to stop far right violence because we benefit from them. And maybe that's too cynical a take for some people, but I don't see any other explanation why, because the only explanation that we're given is it's just too hard. It's just too complicated. I think on this podcast before we have spoken about ideas of uh, preventing violence. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, man, they keep referencing this stuff, but we don't know what they're talking about. I really encourage you to go back and take a look at some of the episodes, especially the ones that talk about um, defunding the police or police abolition. And ones that talk about violence against women and ones that talk about violence against indigenous communities, go back and listen to some of those episodes because we, we've talked several times about um, some of these ideas for, uh, you know, taking a preventative approach to, to violence and rooting out um, the systemic causes of violence in our community. Um, but in close of this episode, you know, um, for everyone, you know, out there, um, I know we're reeling from the, the, this kind of news that that has happened. And, uh, you know, I just, I I feel for all of us who are, um, being impacted by this and feeling, um, uh, deeply about it. And, and I know it can feel like, like hopeless, like there's nothing that can be done, but, um, when we succumb to that sort of 
idea of hopelessness. It's also when, um, you know, uh, these politicians uh, and people who are responsible for uh, refusing um, to engage in this in a preventable way, that's when they, they sort of get away with it. So, um, you know, let's, let's make sure that we're always thinking about um, what's hidden behind those messages of uh, thoughts and prayers and condolences and, and make sure that we're attacking this in the way that we should be.